0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. We're glad you're able to join us on this Tuesday afternoon. Um, I'm your host, Drew DeGrotto. and in a minute I'll bring in the panelists, but I want to thank you for joining us. If you're coming in on the Zoom app, use your Q&A button or your chat button and type away any comments or texts that you'd like to ask us during the program or talk about, whether it's we're talking about the particular topics we're talking about today or other topics. In fact, um, we had someone come in on the wednesday program uh guys i don't know if you knew this on on jeff's program someone actually used the hand button to come in live with the video and audio first time i thought the tuesday program was going to do it first but not yet so we're inviting any of you in our audience if you wanted to come in uh with or without video if you just want to come with your audio click the hand button that tells us you would like to ask a question or make a comment using your audio instead of the text button that's only available on the zoom app if you're coming in on the um Facebook page, Scott's Facebook page, you have the opportunity there to text in any comments or questions during the program. Now keep in mind on Facebook, we're about an 18 second delay uh, from what we're doing when we speak as far as when the Facebook page uh, publishes it, uh, but we're live and instant on Zoom. So with all of that said, uh, Scott, uh, let me bring you in first. Did you have something you wanted to add to that, Scott, well, our yeah, program director?
1: Just that uh, if somebody will come in As you just said, it will save us from being taunted and mocked and ridiculed by the Wednesday crowd. That's correct. (laughs) Oh, yes,
0: yes. (laughs) We gotta catch up. It's one zero right now, they're ahead. We gotta get some of our audience to come in and participate with some live questions and comments. Very good. So that's Scott, how you doing, Scott? I'm doing well. Good, good, good. Stephen, how are you doing, Stephen? Good to see you. Doing well, doing well. Good to see you guys. Great. And Jonathan, good to see you, Jonathan. How you be? Yeah, it's good to see you guys. I didn't mention that we're all Pennsylvanians. Uh, Scott, you're down working with the church in Gettysburg. Jonathan, you're working with the church in Gettysburg too, right? Right. Uh, Stephen, you're working with the church in Harrisburg. That's correct. Good. I'm up here in Honesdale. Actually, I'm working with the Honesdale group and the Scranton group right now. Um, and soon to be with the state prison. Um, Look, I mentioned that last week, another week or two. Uh, It's gonna be interesting to see how that goes. Um, All right, gentlemen, we are, I think I said everything for uh, housekeeping. Let's get into the discussion. Actually, we did have a question that came in from one of our viewers about why don't we use wine, and I'm interpreting that to mean regular real wine, what the world recognizes as wine, in the uh, communion during the Lord's Supper? I think some churches do, I'm not sure. I heard maybe some do, right? Most the groups that I've always been with, it was always uh, grape juice, not not regular fermented wine. So why is that, Scott?
1: Uh, Well, I I think the question comes from, and I was going over this question with a friend uh, a year or so ago. Uh, I think the question comes from the assumption that It says in the New Testament they used wine. However, where in the New Testament did it ever say that uh, the the word wine was used for the Lord's Supper?
0: Uh, Never.
1: Right. Wine is used a number of times in the New Testament. The word wine. uh, Give me some examples where in English you see the word wine in the
0: New Testament. At the wedding in Canaan.
1: Right. Right. Where else? Something about new wine going
0: in old.
1: Uh, wine um, skins. Skins, right? Right. right. Uh, so there's a number of references. On, on the day of Pentecost, the crowd thought that Peter and the apostles were drunk with wine. New wine. And he says, no, it's nine in the morning. Uh, so, Paul, so their wine Paul shows told, a lot. But go, go ahead, Stephen.
2: Paul told Timothy to take a little alcohol for his tummy so yeah, there's that reference in first Timothy five uh verse 23 um where he does tell him to use a little wine for the sake of his frequent ailments
1: couldn't resist a little bit of life of paul I, I just there. had to i it was low-hanging fruit. i'm gonna
0: share that link with the with the audience no
1: that's okay, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> so um the uh so the word shows up a lot, yet in the passages about the Lord's Supper, like in Mark 14, the text doesn't say that he took wine. It simply says he took what? Mark 14, I think, verse 25. The cup. And particularly in Matthew 26, it refers to the cup. Uh uh and well in Mark also, but it also refers to
0: Fruit of the Vine.
1: The fruit of the vine fruit is one word, vine is another word. Obviously, in Jerusalem, what would the fruit of the vine be? Well, grape. Yeah, yeah. And um, that product would often be called wine, but that's not the word used in the New Testament.
0: Is that the only place it's referred to, uh, that some beverage or liquid is referred to, and the other ones just mentioned cup, not knowing what's in the cup?
1: Uh, I think in Matthew it also mentions I will not drink forth. Does he say I will not drink forth this cup until, or does he say fruit of the vine in Matthew? I can't remember. I
3: think
0: it's just cup. cup.
3: He says fruit of the vine It's Matthew twenty six twenty nine. So, I'll tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom.
1: Okay. And what about First Corinthians eleven?
2: So fruit fruit of the vine only comes up in the New Testament uh, three times. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 12, and it's all Jesus saying, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it with you in the kingdom.
1: All right. So uh,
0: so where do we get the
1: wine idea? I, I I think, you know, there's all sorts of things we get in our head. One of my favorite books is Philippians. I have taught Philippians to so many people so many times and I thought that in Philippians, Paul said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And one day I was looking for it and I was like, is it's it? not there and it's not there. And I and I, and it's not, that phrase isn't in scripture anywhere. Uh, he, there is a passage where he said, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee.
2: When he says, I'm a Hebrew of
1: Hebrews. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews in Philippians 3. I wonder, is it just me? But I've Googled, and Pharisee of Pharisees, you can read people, they'll write articles about how Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees and such. We hear it, we hear it, we hear it, we think it, but it's not not the actual words of the text. Then there's some other details. What are some other details that people really, really think is in the Bible? And it's just...
0: Yeah. Uh, We talked about that last week. Everyone knew there was an apple tree that Eve looked at.
1: Yeah, and, of course, the three wise men. There aren't three. The text doesn't say how many there are. So there's lots of things, which is, and and some of these things are a bit trivial. There's a lesson there. What's the lesson? Read what it says.
0: Yeah. Bottom line, read what it says before you make a decision on what you're thinking it's saying.
1: Yeah. And don't read into it what you're already imagining. Read the text and let it speak to you. All right. Uh, Stephen, you've got some material for us on first Timothy. Well,
0: wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry to interrupt. You. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, so the bottom line is you don't have to use wine. All you have to use is fruit
1: of, of the vine. Fine.
0: But what about if you did use wine?
1: I've used wine before. Yeah, so so it's in Haiti. Uh, we were working with the little church and they had not been doing the Lord's Supper and uh, they were supposed to get the stuff ready. Uh, and we got there and they had grape soda. <laughs> I not think that was fruit of the vine. Uh, so I went out, but it was uh, late on a Sunday night, and uh, in Port Prince Haiti, it's not like there's a Kroger, at least not at that time, but I found a little little bitty stand, uh, not a whole lot bigger than maybe a couple of phone booths or so, uh, on the side of a little dirt path or whatever, and they were still open, and bought a bottle of wine. Uh, Use the nail, popped out the cork, and, and we use that. Uh, was it fruit of the vine?
0: Absolutely.
1: Yes, uh, but uh, normally that's not what I would uh, opt to use. And so if you're using fruit of the vine, you're using what the text said, fruit of the vine.
0: All right, so we today we didn't really have a much other um, topics that were coming in, and so I wanna throw the invitation out to everybody that's in the audience. Give us a, uh, any thoughts or comments or questions you want to want to talk about and share, whether you're coming in on the Facebook page or in our um, Zoom audience. Um, uh, Patrick says, there's a comment that came in, and notice it doesn't say fruit of the grape either, the younger prophet in 1 Kings 13. I think that was in response to
2: Scott's question, what's the purpose, what's the lesson here? Uh, and the things oh, that we think are in the text, but aren't actually there. First right, right. Kings 13, according to the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. And then right. he gets fooled. Uh, so we don't want to be fooled like the younger prophet.
0: Oh, that's okay. Good. Very good. Very good. Um, okay. So Stephen, you had suggested we talk about something in, uh, well, actually the chapter, second chapter of uh, first Timothy, right? You got some slides on that you want to share with us? Yeah,
2: uh, Sure. Um, so we've been studying through this uh, in the congregation here on Wednesdays, and um, I will be happy to share a little bit of that. And I figured it would just be helpful. There's several relevant things in this text, Scott.
1: Oh, just a second. I just noticed uh, what uh, Pat's comment was. It doesn't say the young prophet, and oh, i think you I'll talk about the older prophet, the young, the young prophet. It says the guy up there was the there was an old prophet, but it doesn't say the guy from Judea is the young prophet uh now given that you mentioned one's old and the other it, 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 it could, I would suspect he is younger but you know the first guy could the guy that lies could have been 80 and the other guy could have been 60 uh or <laughs> you know he could have just you could have been the same age um but yeah i i, point. I get that in my mind the young prophet and it's, it's not that that's text doesn't say that
2: yeah. Well, the text doesn't give you a lot of other details. You have to go with what you got. So <laughs> that's probably how people started calling him the younger prophet. Calls the older guy old. So what does that make this guy?
1: Yeah, <laughs> and, and, uh, and we don't have his name, so we're looking to describe it.
2: All right. Well, uh, we've been recently studying through First Timothy, and uh, so I figured it might be helpful for us to uh, talk about that today. There's several helpful, uh, relevant things in this text. I'll put the text here up on the screen. And um, Paul's writing to Timothy in this letter. And Timothy has been left in the church at Ephesus, which had a lot of different struggles in that church. Um, And actually, we learn more in some ways about the church at Ephesus from the letter of 1 Timothy than we do from the letter to the Ephesians. Um, That's a very general letter. First Timothy, he's going to name some of the specific people causing trouble in the church Ephesus and give him some specific instructions. So let's just read um, the first bit of the chapter. Here Paul writes to Timothy, uh, First Timothy 2 verse 1. and this is the English Standard Version I have on screen. Uh, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of god our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth for there is one god and there is one mediator between god and men the man christ jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time for this i was appointed and a preacher and an apostle i'm telling the truth and not lying a teacher of the gentiles in faith and truth so Paul uh, has given some introductory things in chapter one, warning against some false teaching, uh, sharing his own story with Timothy again about his conversion. But this is kind of where he gets down to business and says, "All right, here's what I want to write to you about for the church there in Ephesus." And what's the first thing on the on the docket for his letter, chapter two, verse one? What does he first write to them about? Ring. Urge. In fact, I urge you. Yep, yeah, it is so important for us to be part of. Communities of believers that are praying. Uh, We need to be a people of prayer and he uses some different words for prayer here I'm not even sure what all the distinctions are between some of these supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgivings Uh, I think supplication and Thanksgiving we can tell what those are supplication is asking for something Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving is giving thanks to God Mm -hmm. Prayer is just the general word for prayer, but intercession is kind of interesting here it's the same word that's used about Jesus and the spirit and other, uh, contexts. Um, and clearly we're not making intercession for people like Jesus does, but to intercede for someone is just to go to someone else on their behalf. And so I think the idea here is that when we are praying for our leaders or for other people, we are interceding for them to God on their behalf. Not again, not to say, Oh, forgive their sins. And, We are offering ourselves in their place. That's what only Jesus can do, but that we are asking God on their behalf for something. And so that's what he's asking for here is that uh, pray for kings, pray for these other people. Scott?
1: Moses, uh, praying, for intercession for the people, for example.
2: Yeah, great example in
1: the Old Testament.
2: And so So, here's a, a good,
0: or go ahead. I was just going to, you're going to get into a chat, a verse two, I'm sure, but it's very timely because of the, uh, the political environment we find ourselves in, but it's very clear what we should be praying for, not that our side wins. <laughs> in fact, sometimes we'll pray, uh, Lord, we pray that our leaders will follow your principles. And, and that's, that's, I think, is legitimate too. But here it gets a little bit more specific that the purpose of our prayer for our benefit right yes and that's i think
2: the really important question in this text is why should we be praying for our leaders what is the goal of those prayers and it's clear here that we want to be able to live a peaceful and godly life peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way Um, and that's easier in some circumstances and under some governments than others Paul lived in a day where there was some, some tough things going on. And so Paul urges the Christians in Ephesus I want you guys to pray so that there can be favorable conditions for you to live a godly and quiet life. But I think this ties right in in verses three and four. What's the other purpose for
0: praying for our leaders? I have opportunity that others may come to salvation.
2: That's right. It's for favorable conditions for the gospel. It's a lot easier for the gospel to spread when you can peaceably talk and move among people, and so these peaceful conditions are something that is not just good for us personally as Christians, but for us to be able to spread the message of the gospel to more
0: people. Drew, I, I, I I'm, I'm hard to say it this way, but it was the persecution that caused this church to, the church to spread so much, isn't that interesting?
2: Yes, the Lord works through all different kinds of circumstances, and it's not to say that, oh, there's persecution, so we can't spread the gospel. No, <laughs> right. the, the, the church was able to spread despite the persecution, at times because of the persecution, like in Acts chapter eight, where they go everywhere uh, spreading the word. But for the most part, it's easier for Christians to spread the gospel when they're not on the run from the authorities. Mm. Scott?
1: Yeah, it's, I'm reminded of the verse in Proverbs about money. You know, don't let me have so little that I would be tempted to steal or so much that what is it? I forget my God or or something like that. Uh, With persecution, if we never face challenges and if we never face tests, we will become very, very weak and soft and and not what we need to be but if all we face is persecution you know it it can get very discouraging and limited and stuff
2: yeah i don't think that james tells us to rejoice when we encounter various kinds of trials that doesn't necessarily mean we're asking for more trials or looking forward to the trials but he says rejoice because of what the trials do for you And so the Lord can work through persecution, but we can still pray, Lord, please allow the government and the leaders to go about in such a way that we can live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified, and so that conditions will be favorable for more people to be saved because God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the less we're having to worry about what the government's doing, the more we can focus our resources on telling more people about the gospel. Again, the Lord will use all sorts of circumstances to, for his glory and for the purposes of the gospel. But this is the purpose of our prayer, what we're directed to pray for here in First Timothy 2. Other thoughts you guys have on that direction to prayer here?
1: The, I'm reminded of two verses in Acts. At the beginning of the persecution at the death of Stephen, a great persecution broke out and disciples went everywhere preaching the word. But then after Saul's conversion, it mentions, and they had peace, and the church multiplied. So an example of it working both ways.
2: Yeah, great point. And that kind of leads to his next point here in verse 5. He talks about the mediator between God and men. I think this is in the context of prayer. He says there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Um, and this is one of the roles that we have. Uh, or that Jesus has is mediating for us as we go to the Father. It's interesting here that he describes Jesus as a man here in the present tense, the man, Christ Jesus. Um, And I wonder if the context here is that Hebrews will talk about that Jesus is our perfect high priest because of his humanity. He, He came down here and took on flesh and blood so that he could be a perfect high priest for us and that when we pray god it's not that we can say to god oh you don't understand what it's like down here <laughs> but no he understands perfectly well what it's like down here in the sense that jesus god in the form of jesus comes to earth and is tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin hebrews 4 will say And now, is at God's right hand interceding for us? That's a powerful thing. When we pray, God understands. Uh, Jesus understands specifically. He's in a perfect position to go to God on our behalf because of his humanity. Um, And that's pointed out here. Some have speculated here. We don't have to get too far off on this. But um, is Jesus still human in some sense? Um, It describes him as the man, Christ Jesus here. Um, Does he still have his body? I don't know the answer to that specifically. This seems to hint that that may be the case. Um, But I think the main question here is that uh, Jesus is at God's right hand now interceding for us in our prayers. Any thoughts or comments on that, the mediation of Jesus? So Paul continues here and talks about that Jesus is the ransom. All. um, This is a word that isn't used a whole lot in the New Testament, but it's this idea of something that's paid in, in exchange for something, and that Jesus is our ransom. And that Paul's purpose in all this is to tell people about Jesus and his message. Again, that's why we're praying for our leaders in the first place, is that this gospel message of Jesus giving himself as our ransom can continue to spread far and wide. Um, thoughts or comments on this section? Anything else you guys want to point out before we move to the next paragraph?
1: Scott? One thing on the word ransom uh, we don't see it in English, but in Greek, it's very clear that the word ransom and the word redeem are in the same word family. Uh, I think it's luo is redeem and lutron maybe is ransom. Uh, and if you look at the meanings, Ransom is what you pay to redeem someone. And redeem is what you have done for someone when you have paid the ransom. And it would have been used uh, like most New Testament words outside of the gospel. Um, if you took a city uh and there was a king or a princess in that city that was of great value to someone else. Uh, You you wouldn't necessarily send them to the salt mines or to be your maidservant or something. You would sell them for ransom back, you know, to the family. Uh, Pirates, you know, would do this uh, back at the beginning of this country and more recently in Somalia and in ancient times. Julius Caesar was one time seized by pirates and they said, uh, you know, send word to your family or whatever, here's how much ransom they have to pay. And he laughed because the number was quite low. He said, you don't realize who you've got. (laughs) But he sent out the letters and they came up with the money. And then after the ransom was paid, he was redeemed. And so they let him go. Uh, Julius Caesar went away, came back with the Navy, wiped out all the pirates. So that's how that went. But uh, ransom and redeem, it's one is the noun, one's the verb, same related thing.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Coming back just real quick before we move on uh, just to the prayer for leaders in this section. I think that it's also noteworthy that in verse 1 it talks about thanksgiving is part of our prayer for all people and for our leaders. Um, and that it's important as we pray to God, however whatever circumstances we're in, government wise, that one of the important things for us to do is to be giving thanks for the good things that God has given us and to be giving thanks for our leaders. Um, Paul will come into contact with various leaders in his time in the book of Acts. And it's interesting to me that he treats them with respect, regardless of where they're at uh, on the political spectrum or on the morality spectrum. Um, And he'll reason with them about self-control and the coming judgment and these things, but that it's important for us in such a politically polarized climate right now, regardless of where we're at, to give thanks for our leaders, whoever is in office, and to, again, come back to the purpose of the gospel. We are serving a far greater kingdom than any of the kingdoms of men, America or otherwise. And this text is really focusing us in on that purpose, on bringing more people to be saved. Anything else you guys have on this? All right. So um, this next paragraph will kind of pick up for the men and continuing to urge them to pray. One uh, of you brothers le- uh, read this, uh, verses 8 through 15.
0: Okay, I'll take. Go I, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without And I'm reading from the ESV For Adam was formed first then Eve and Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and uh, and love and holiness with self-control all right so there's two
2: groups that are addressed here again Paul is giving instructions to Timothy Timothy is going to be given these instructions to the Christians in Ephesus and who are the two groups that are addressed in this paragraph
0: men and women yeah What are the men told to do raise their hands in holy prayer or pray with holy hands i don't think it's so much uh instructions that when you pray you have to raise your hands up in the air and that makes them holy but rather it's an attitude of any guilt on you on your part
4: yeah
2: yeah and there's certainly nothing wrong with raising hands there's all sorts of different postures for prayer in scripture but lifting holy hands is the idea of um, sometimes we'll talk about the idea of like someone uh having blood on their hands uh and that image that picture is like a picture of guilt and so it's saying when we come to god we need to be living our life in such a way that we're lifting holy hands to god that we're not lifting guilty hands i think is kind of the the contrast
0: in this particular passage and yeah, what does we, he say that the men need to avoid? Or go ahead, Drew. Uh, well, that, it's more of a figurative thing from, I guess, our perspective. But wasn't it uh, a practice both in pagan and in Jewish cultures that they would physically raise their hands? Is that, I don't know if I, I remember I'm, I'm not something. sure about the history of that posture. I mean,
2: yeah. it's certainly a common one throughout. I've seen it in different groups, but uh, I don't know about what it was for them.
0: Okay. But anyway, <laughs> It's more of a, it's a, the attitude, not the physical Presence of where your hands are, although, like you said, it, there's nothing wrong in raising hands and praising God.
1: There's several things that we know. There's several things that we know about prayer and how they prayed in the first century. Uh, from First Corinthians 14, it looks like they said "Amen" at the end of their prayers because don't pray in a tongue, otherwise, how did somebody know how to say "Amen"? Mm-hmm. Uh, here, I believe they they lifted up their hands, and he's saying, "Lift up holy hands." Uh, I don't think it means that that's the only physical position you can be in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jesus gave a parable of two guys praying, one appropriately and one not appropriately. The one praying not appropriately was a Pharisee, you know, standing thus and looking up to God, but the one whose prayer Jesus appreciated wouldn't even look up, and what was he doing with his hands?
0: Was he pounding his chest?
1: Yeah, he was. saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, it wasn't necessarily this position. So it doesn't have to be in that position. Another interesting thing that sometime else, uh, I'd, I'd kind of like to talk about this, but not today. Uh, they apparently said Abba Baba, in their prayers, uh, which is an interesting thing and can talk about some other time. But mm-hmm. go ahead.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. It also tells the men specifically to not uh, be angry or quarrel with each other. And apparently there was some kind of problems going on like with that that in Ephesus. And
0: um, you mean, there's problems going on in the Lord's church. (laughs) Believe it or not, you you got two men, you're going to have
2: two problems. (laughs) That's right. And one of the things that's going to be interesting to me here is in this text, the women are going to be told in just a minute that they need to wear modest clothing But one of the things that's interesting to me is to read these things together and neither of these things are gender exclusive. Um, It's not that men need to not watch what they're wearing or that women can't struggle with anger and quarreling. But Paul addresses some things that might tend to be the struggle for the different genders. And both of the struggles have at their root something that says, look at me, Look, look at who I am, And there's a selfishness in both of these problems. For men, it's not usually showing off with what we wear. It's quarreling and trying to one-up the other guy and, and, and getting the pecking order straight is what we often struggle with. For ladies, it's not necessarily that same thing, but oftentimes it's wearing things for attention, whether that's wearing things that are super, you know, I'm not sure what the word is that I'm looking for, but just showing off. Uh, That was apparently what was going on here. He talks about braided hair, gold and pearls and costly attire, treating church like a fashion show, Um, or whether it's not wearing enough clothing and calling sexual attention to yourself. The point here is that Paul is addressing men and he's addressing women and saying, it's not about you. Men, you guys need to lift holy hands and be praying. Don't be angry with each other and quarreling. Stop that. Women, stop dressing like this. You need to be dressing with what's proper for women who profess godliness. You need to be dressing with good works. So for both the men and the women, it's a not this, but that. And I appreciate just how Paul lays that out here and that I think both of those principles have the same underlying selfishness to them, the look at me attitude. Do you have thoughts or comments on that?
1: Yeah, I wanted to mention... Uh, because we have a tendency I think like let's look at this here uh, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire um, you, you might you might be familiar with back in the early half of the 1900s holiness churches uh, the women tended to be very very plain while the men in those could be really flashy sometimes uh, but no makeup in there but in these So let's talk for a second, is this a prohibition against having any gold or any braids? Is it a point of emphasis, Uh, what's going on there?
2: Well, it seems like in the context, again, when we have a not this, but that, that there's often something being downplayed and something being emphasized. It's a little bit like when Jesus says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. That doesn't mean quit your job. It doesn't mean that you're prohibited from laboring for food that perishes. <laughs> like we need to eat, you <laughs> need to work. But here it, there's a point of emphasis. You're putting too much emphasis ladies on braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire. You're dressing in such a way that's calling attention to yourself too yeah. much. Yeah. What you need to be doing is focusing on what's proper for women who profess godliness focus on
1: good works less of that more of this yeah uh and so for example um wearing gold uh what did, what did abraham send uh as his servant is looking for a wife for isaac some jewels of gold uh what did the worthy woman have her household dressed in dressed in scarlet so it's not that you have to have the poorest thing or that there can't be anything, but we really do need to watch out for the outlandishness of it and where we're putting the emphasis. Um, I don't think that Peter or Paul would have been pleased with you know, Christian women having elaborate hairstyles and a bunch of jewelry and, and expensive clothes. Um, I don't think it means they had to be as plain as possible either, but we've got warnings about this both here and over in Peter. And I wanted to share. can I share a screen for a second about you some over,
0: Are you going over to first Peter three?
1: No, I'm actually going to uh, look at uh, some Roman hairstyles to give an example of the type of thing. So uh, these are some statues from the time, and you can and you you can see sometimes like on bases, and you'll see like a team of women, servants behind the woman who's being served, and they're getting her all. You know, Gussie and They could spend a lot of time getting it all ready. Here's a pretty elaborate one. Um, here's uh, that one. There we go. There's a pretty elaborate hair. Pretty there. epic. And, and it it said a lot about I'm sure your cultural status and such. Um, this is uh, this is just Wikipedia on Roman hairstyles. If you want to read that. Uh, so that might help put some things into perspective. Here's here's a woman, you know, getting ready to see the people here helping her. I think that might be a mirror right there. And you know what? You know, if, if you're spending a lot of time at the beauty parlor and you're making sure that you've got your fake lashes and your expensive hair and your, you know, two pounds of makeup and stuff, you know, think about, think about what you're doing. Uh, A
0: comment came in from Patrick on 1 Peter 3.3. What about forbidding the wearing of apparel? Um, That's one of those not but things, I think, Stephen. Yeah,
1: because in Timothy, it says not costly apparel. And in 1 Peter, it says, let your adorning not be in the braiding of hair and the gold or wearing of apparel. If, If you take it as meaning you cannot do any of those things at all, then you couldn't wear apparel. He's yeah. saying, let that be the point of what Let your adorning be your good spirit instead of your, uh, etc. Yeah. Let's
2: just read that text here. First Peter three verses three and four it says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So similar uh, parallel there. So the women are told uh, to watch out for the way that they're dressing. And they're also told to watch out for the way that they're submitting uh, or lack thereof. In verse 11 and 12, he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And again, apparently in Ephesus, there were women who were abandoning this and who were uh, taking teaching positions that were inappropriate for women to have. Uh, You have this passage, which gives a general principle about women not taking a position of authority over a man, uh, men to be in the roles of teaching when there's men and women gathered together. Um, And in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul also write to the church in Corinth and say, women are not to speak in church. Uh, They're to ask their husbands at home. They're, you know, not to even ask a question in the assembly. There's a whole study we could do on that sometime. But the point here um, is that these women are not staying in their proper role. Uh, They're not doing what God told them to do. And then the reasoning is given in verses 13 and 14. Um, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So there's a reason from creation. And then there's a reason from the fall. And both of these things show that man, there's a headship order that God creates. Um, In 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about it. God is the head of Christ, is the head of man, is the head of woman. And this created order is part of what God made to be good. And we need to understand that headship, a lot of times, you know, our society balks at this kind of stuff. I think in large part because headship is something that can be so easily abused, mm. whether it's the government over its subjects or a man over a woman, a husband over a wife. And if, they, if we view headship as a my way or the highway, iron fist kind of leadership, I can see why people balk at that. But biblical headship is about servant sacrificial leadership. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, we could do a whole you know, study on headship here, but this is a really important text to show there's a reason that men and women have the roles that they do. Part of it is the way God created men and women, Adam first and then Eve, and part of it is also happened with what happened in the fall. It says the, the woman was deceived, the man was not, um, but that the woman, of course, the man was just as guilty as the woman for eating the fruit, um, but that there's a creation order here. Comments or thoughts before we get to verse 15? I know we just got five minutes left. Um, What do y'all want to bring out about this?
0: Question. uh, There's a a comment. Does uh, 2 Timothy 2, 11, it's not limited to the church assembly. Uh, Context says it applies everywhere. Verse 8, is modest apparel, verse 9, 10, only required in the church assembly.
2: Right. So there is a question about application here because clearly, I mean, talking about modest apparel and prayer those are clearly things that are universal all the time Um, there does there do come some questions and i realize this is really and again we could talk a lot about this uh, about where where do we draw the line with teaching Um, and also what kind of teaching is in view um, in these passages if you read the broader context of 1 Timothy, he'll talk in chapter 3 that he's giving instructions for how one is to behave in the church, uh, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And so I think that there's some good conversations we could have maybe another time about the the scope of these verses. Um, I do think, as he's reasons from creation here, that there are parts of this that apply every time, every place, um, as far as women not teaching or exercising authority over a man, that's not just getting up in a pulpit in a church assembly, but that's men and women gathered together in other contexts as well, that God intends for the men to be the teachers, uh, for women to learn. And let me just also say, when we talk about those teaching roles in mixed uh, assemblies, that's such a small percentage of where the the work of the gospel gets done. Such a small percentage. People get so fixated on these verses but when you look at how gospel work gets done, so much of it is on a one-on-one basis. And there's so much influence starting in Timothy's life. In Second Timothy, he'll say, Timothy, I see in you the same faith that I saw in your mother, your mother, Eunice, your grandmother, Lois. Women had a tremendous impact on Timothy's life and therefore on all the people Timothy taught. But it wasn't because they were standing up in a pulpit somewhere. It was because they were teaching their grandson and their son timothy jonathan
3: and also in the parallel that, that was already mentioned in first peter three uh in first peter three one that's the same point that peter makes um that you don't necessarily necessarily have to teach to win a soul and he gives it in the context of uh, a husband and wife and so he says wives be subject to your husbands so that even if they do not obey the word they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct on that type of idea so Obviously, winning someone's soul for God, obviously, they need to know Jesus. They need to know the good news. But there are a lot of other factors that influence them in that right direction.
2: Yeah.
3: Let's take just a minute before we wrap
2: up today and talk about verse 15. This is a challenging verse. I think the purpose of it is to soften what he's just said in verses 13 and 14. But different translations do different things with this. Uh, There are three main questions that we have to ask is, who is the she and the they in verse 15? Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I will say, it is possible for it to be the same group of people. Um, In this context, Paul has used a plural for women in verse 9 and verse 10. And he's used a singular for women in verse 11 and verse 12. And so it's notable that Paul can shift talking about the same group, sometimes singular, sometimes plural. So it doesn't have to be two different groups. The quest- this next question is what sense of salvation is used here? Is this like eternal salvation? Um, or is this talking about being preserved in some other way? The new American standard uses the word preserved. And then what's the reference to childbearing here? Uh, I'm just gonna put up some different views and talk about what I think is the most likely view. I'm not dogmatic about this. On the first two views, read the verse and talk about, well, women will be saved eternally through having children if they continue in faith and love, etc. Or women will be saved eternally um, through having children if the children continue in faith and love. What, what is the challenging thing about those two interpretations? Just, just reading it right there. Um, what, does, that, does that seem to gel with the rest of the Bible teaching?
1: In yeah. Corinth, For the situation they were in at the time, Paul advised women not to marry. So they wouldn't have been having children in in that situation. It's uh, it's not required that a person has to be married. That's right.
2: And so neither of these seem likely that your salvation, the woman's salvation, is not based on her marital status or her parent status. and no one's salvation is based on the behavior of their children um, that you're not saved <laughs> if your children continue in you know love and uh, holiness and all these things another possible view um, and this is the view that some translations take is that women will be brought safely through childbirth um, if the women continue in faith love etc that seems very unlikely just based on on life experience that not every woman survives childbirth not every child is brought safely through childbirth i mean especially in the first century where there would have been a much higher mortality rate for those things than it is now and just because someone dies in childbirth that's not a a statement on their salvation or, or on their favor before god safety through childbirth is not something i think that is promised in this text An interesting view that I came across recently on this is that after just talking about Adam and Eve in verse uh, 13 and in verse 14, this could be talking about Eve being saved, that she is the singular she in this verse, and that she's saved by the bearing of the child, that is Jesus being born, and it is true that Jesus is the one who will save us eternally, it's only through his blood that we're saved. While that's an interesting reading in the context, it seems like a stretch of the language and for Paul to suddenly be talking about Eve being saved by Jesus being born seems a bit strange uh, for that to be. They do this. Right. Uh, So it's an awkward transition there to they. So I think the most likely view is something along the lines of women will be delivered through childbearing. I don't think this is eternal salvation in this context. Um, if, they, if the women continue, I think it's the same subject, the she and the they. But I wonder if it's not the idea of being delivered from an improper role or an improper attitude. That's the context here is these women are usurping their proper role, they're taking authority roles over men. Um, and that the idea of childbearing is not just the idea of the having of the children, but also the woman's role in the home, the raising of the children. Over in 1 Timothy 5.14, Uh, He will say, I I want the younger widows to marry, to bear children, to be, you know, managing their own households. And so I suspect that the emphasis here again is on like a not this, but that. Women don't need to be focused on teaching men or, or, you know, not being, you know, like taking these public roles. They need to be focused on their role as wives and mothers. Again, not to say that every woman has to do that, but this is the emphasis being given in this text. And that fits with the other teaching that we see in Titus, where the older women are teaching the younger women uh, to love their husbands, being keepers at home, and things like that. Again, lots more this is the tip of the iceberg on this topic, but this is the best I've been able to do with uh, this particular challenging verse. Do y'all have thoughts or co- questions on that?
1: kind of going along with number five there uh, perhaps the idea is almost uh, I'll call it gender redemption in other words Eve here the first of women is one that initiated you know uh, was deceived and initiated sin and such but it's through women that life comes and lives are molded and so much good happens Uh, You know, like we say, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Uh, And kind of a, some idea along that idea, perhaps.
2: Yeah. I don't think that any of these passages are, again, uh, forbidding a woman from not being a wife or a mother, but that there's an emphasis here on the God-given created role for men and women, and that it is in fulfilling those roles that we find fulfillment. Um, So that's, I think, kind of a, Big picture take on this chapter. Do anything else you guys have? I know we've gone a couple minutes over this week. Anything else you'll have before we wrap up? All right, Jonathan. Uh,
1: just an minute. interesting comment from Pat. He suggests childbearing is the, and I can't uh, say that word either. Yeah, yeah, that's a <laughs> word. I think it's synecdoche. Now I'm not even going to try. Synec- synecdoche. Thank you, thank you, for the woman's complete role. He had been talking about her subjective role mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. All
3: right, well, thank you all for uh, your comments and discussion. Thank you, Stephen, for preparing that and going through that. Um, if there are any other further questions or comments or things um, that you all have, um, actually, looks like um, Danielle is raising her hand. I don't know exactly how to do that. Do you know how to bring that in, Drew? <laughs>
0: Well, you're the host now, so you have to Let's see.
3: Oh, okay, here we go. Got click it. on it. Uh, oh, okay. Permit it. Yeah, there you go, Danielle. Go ahead.
4: Hey there. I'm at the park with my daughter. So if the connection is spotty, apologies. Um, I thought that something, something that I thought was interesting is as you were talking about, uh, Stephen, about the things that the Lord is emphasizing here are the things that men and women struggle with differently. And then what he tells women and men to focus on are honestly things that, you know, the way he designed us, um, you talked about pecking order for the way that men communicate. And, um, you know, that really allows men to get things done and to do things in a way um, that I, as a woman, have struggled to do at times in the workplace and things like that. And women, um, God has given, it's okay, I won't sing you, God has given um, no. women great interpersonal skill and nurturing natures no. and um, no. and just, you know, a lot of things that give us a, a, an aptitude for raising children and for, you know, doing that behind the scenes work that may not come as naturally to men. And so I think it's interesting that we see on the one hand how if we're not using those gifts that God gave us or if we're um, not using it kind of makes me think of the warning like, you know, warranty is voided if product is not used as intended, right? So it's, <laughs> you know, very, good, very good. You know, it's if you're using these things, you can use them in a godly way and in an ungodly way. And that's what it feels like it's being outlined here is, you know, don't don't be bickering with one another. But, you know, at the same time, you are to be leaders in the church. And with women, it's don't draw attention to yourself. But at the same time, you know, be be makers of the home. You know, be, be doing that work in the home that's behind the scenes, the quiet work that, you know, and they're both sides are work that needs to be done. It's just we need to be doing it in a godly way um, and finding the godly ways to use the talents um, and the design that God has given us so
1: mm, yeah it's great and morning, one, of you know, the, one of the one of the skills that i think women especially have is multitasking so they're able <laughs> to make a good observation about an important text at the same time that they're dealing with their child at the park <laughs>
4: <laughs> you mean you you wouldn't wear your six-week-old while swinging your your two-year-old while listening to a bible study <laughs> <laughs> but thank, thank you thank you scott that's a that's a good i I will take that compliment
1: thank you thanks good observation thank you all right
3: well thank you danielle for that um and as as probably the least experienced of the four of us in the whole raising children a realm i'm expecting my firstborn uh here soon and let me just say i am so glad (laughs) that i'm gonna have my wife to help to raise that child (laughs) because i'm terrified (laughs) of how that's all gonna work
0: and from Um, one from experience you should be terrified
3: (laughs) (laughs) but thank you all for your discussion and everything um today and stephen for putting that together and for our audience members um and your discussion and comments and questions um, for any other of our mem- audience members uh, or anyone that downloads the podcast later on, if you all have further questions about this topic or any other topic uh, in the Bible, different passages you'd like us to go over or, or specific questions you want addressed, you can submit those to uh, BibleQuest.tv. And we'll be happy to uh, go th- uh, get to those on our next broadcast or following broadcast. But with that, we will wrap up for this week and hopefully see you all next Tuesday, Lord willing.